0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today here in Spain is U.S. men's national team goalkeeper Matt Turner. Before we get going, you can sign up for free or paid subscriptions to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two, and I've got big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Matt Turner in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Well done getting the only U.S. men's national team player
1: that is currently getting praise after his performance (laughs) on Friday morning.
0: Matt Turner is a fun interview. Always good. I think everyone will enjoy listening to it. Um, And yes, he was about the only bright spot of this 2-0 loss to Japan on Friday that felt like more than 2-0, to be honest, and could have been, if not for Matt Turner, you could make the argument, but really a step backward, and I guess it's taking place just two months before the start of the World Cup, and that's cause for concern because it seems like a big takeaway from the game is you can pressure the U.S. team, and basically they'll turn the ball over. Yeah, and it seems as though the U.S.'s identity that they've been
1: trying to form for three years now, could come unstuck from a personnel issue, I think. When you look at the way that the U.S. is attempting to play, I think... Greg Berhalter probably had a vision for, well, we'll have Zach Steffen in goal. He'll be very good with the ball at his feet. We'll have John Brooks at left center back. He'll be very good with the ball at his feet. We'll try and find a solution at left back. Maybe it'll be Sergino Dest out there. We can play Reggie Cannon out the other side, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of defenders that can play out from the back. Tyler Adams can improve as a ball-carrying midfielder, as a ball-progressing midfielder. He hasn't really. And so all of a sudden you look at what is, for me, the back six of the U.S., really save for Dest, There isn't a whole lot of ability to play the ball out from the back. I think Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long, in terms of U.S. eligible players, probably do the least with the ball at club level. They're basically told, get rid by their managers, Gerhard Struber uh, in New York and Gary Smith in Nashville. Sam Vines, I thought, looked poor, trying to, at any point, look forward. With, it, with his possession of the ball at left back. I thought the tactical switch was at the very least able to get him into better positions to try and progress and look forward and carry the team forward, and he looked better once they moved to a wingback system. But Matt Turner, guest on the pod, but not brilliant with his feet. He will do a job, but probably not the job. And all of a sudden, you look at this team and you go, so they just entirely play with a different identity to than the one they've been trying to build out over the course of time. When you look at all the defensive third giveaways that they had against Japan... Japan, who had a very clear and organized press, made it very difficult for the U.S. to play out, as you said, and you're starting to wonder, should the U.S. just try and knock it long during the World Cup? And I'm not sure that's exactly where Greg Berhalter wants to be with less than two months before the opening
0: day. But knocking it long, having a target forward, having someone who can get in, who's fast, behind the back line of Japan would have been a nice option to have. And the U.S. really didn't try that. Uh, for some reason, and partly because I don't think they have great personnel for it, including at the forward position. Um, It's a real puzzle, I think. And we're going to see how many other teams try to play against the U.S. the way Japan did. Uh, I don't know if Saudi Arabia will do that on Tuesday, and I think the U.S. is pretty primed for a bounce-back game. But that's still a team that uh, did really well in World Cup qualifying in the Asian region. And, uh, and we'll see how that goes. I'm in Murcia, Spain, by the way, uh, where that game will take place. Apparently, this is like the Saudi home away from home. And that's why this game is taking place here. It's kind of a random part of Spain. Um, and yet, I just went over earlier today and spoke to, uh, had the, the Turner interview at the U.S. Team Hotel on a nice golf course. Uh, outside of Murcia, and the Ecuador team was staying there as well. I felt like congratulating them for requalifying for the World Cup last week after the FIFA decision <laughs> um, allowed them to go, and they said they did not use an ineligible player. But, um, you know, like, it's, it's just an interesting time of year. I guess my other question is, why is the U.S. playing Saudi Arabia and Japan when... Argentina is in the US, Colombia is in the US, and I realize those are South American teams and the US doesn't play a South American team in its group, but I've never bought this nonsense idea that playing a team from the Asian continent or the Asian confederation prepares you to play for Iran. Japan is nothing like Iran. I don't even know if Saudi Arabia is much like Iran and how they play. And If that's the reason, that's kind of silly, I think. It would have been nice to play Argentina and Colombia this month in the United States. Well,
1: I actually, I will disagree with you, not because of the opponents, but because of the locations. I think one of the things that we talked a little bit about, or was talked about during the broadcast of the USA-Japan match was how infrequently the U.S. has played away from home under Greg Berhalter in non uh official competition scenarios and gold cups and nations leagues are always held on u.s territory the world cup qualifiers the u.s played away from home they were really poor in save for that honduras second half so i actually think it was valuable to get away from the u.s continent frankly to get away from ohio i I don't mean to be mean (laughs) to the people of columbus and cincinnati but The U.S. play in Ohio a lot. And so I think the U.S. sort of need to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and kind of not have home field advantage the supporters behind them and see what they look like in the deep end. And I think that was a real test. Uh, in September, or in, in, the, in the game against Japan, and we'll see against Saudi Arabia. I will say, underestimate Saudi Arabia at your own peril because they're actually very good with the ball, believe it or not. If you look at their games in Asia, they're very good with the ball. Their domestic league values possession as well. I've seen a few games from there. And so I do think that this could also be a difficult test as well, though maybe in a different way. Maybe in some ways, a possession team might help the U.S. with their transition game and not think about building out from the back so much. In some ways, they might want to give up possession of the ball and try and be better in transition. Although I will say, if the whole idea of a transitional system, which which Greg Berhalter has talked about throughout qualifying, requires a good press, I don't think the U.S. even pressed that well against Japan. When they didn't have the ball and they weren't giving it away in their own half, when they were trying to get numbers to the ball and trying to press and harry Japan off it, they were pretty organized. They knew exactly what they wanted to do with the ball. I think a lot of times organization is talked about in terms of defending and in terms of uh, handing off assignments, but I think organization with the ball is a very real thing. Every time Japan had the ball in possession they were trying to build out, there was that next option to pass, and the U.S. did not have that, which was cause for for, for great concerns.
0: I agree with you on that. I, I don't want to leave this, by the way. you Do you really think that the U.S. played Argentina- in miami and colombia in new jersey that those those crowds would be pro us i don't i think they'd be very not they'd be much more pro argentina and pro colombia and would feel like an away environment um and having been in that arena the other day in dusseldorf there's like no one in the stadium it was kind of a weird one it felt like we were back in the pandemic the game was being played in the middle of the afternoon on a friday between two teams that have no German connection really. And uh, it was a little strange, but um, I'm with you on, on how the US has been set up to play. Uh, I actually asked Greg Berhalter in the press conference the other day, like when you talk about your system, your game model, what is that? And he basically didn't want to take the time to answer the question. <laughs> 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 he, he said, we, we already talked about that three years ago when I took the job. I was like, no, I actually, I'd like to know. This is like, uh, like, but it, it didn't really happen. And he ended up answering another question. But like, we talk a lot about Greg Berhalter's system as if everyone sort of understands what that system is. And I don't know if everyone understands what that system is, but clearly it's being used in discussions these days to sort of make the case that, oh, Jordan Peefock doesn't fit the system of Greg Berhalter. John Brooks doesn't fit the system of Greg Berhalter. Um, and when you see the U.S. play the way they did the other day against Japan, I'm not so much of a Brooks guy who think who thinks, like, Brooks needs to be on this team because John Brooks hasn't played much club soccer or any soccer at all recently. Um, but I do think that, that PFOX should be here. I think it's crazy that he's not. And I think when you look at that game on Friday, it's the people who weren't playing who come off pretty well. And, and you're thinking about Eunice Musa and Christian Polisic and players like that who weren't part of this game where the U.S. was so dreary. Yeah, and you're right to sort
1: of ask the question about the system because the system is different. I mean, do you remember that, that first friendly? I want to say they played it in Arizona. I forget who it was against. And Greg Berhalter came out, and they looked like Pep Guardiola's you know 3-2-2-3 three, two, two, three formation where you know they pinch the fullbacks inside and they drop to hold the midfielder in and it was a whole like we're gonna play like guardiola's uh, manchester city and it's evolved over time it's not that anymore and even from within you know the the change in having Yunus musa drop further into the midfield who by the way is a big miss and i do think the missing personnel should be discussed in this matter. Um but that system has absolutely changed over time. And the way that they've gone about winning games has changed over time. I saw that actually the US are quite good when they don't have a ton of possession of the ball as opposed to when they do. And the possession was kind of held, oh look, they had 56% of the ball and they did nothing. That percentage that, that percentage of possession was utterly meaningless on Friday morning. Utterly meaningless. It didn't matter that they had the ball. They were terrible with the ball. And I, I do sort of wonder as it's evolved over time he said it's more transitional he said he said other things about how they've changed the style over the course of qualifying to fit this group of younger players to fit a group of players you cannot argue that the system has changed over time so I do think it is worth asking although maybe he doesn't want to give away seven weeks for the World Cup and opponents could be watching what exactly the system will be that is a question that is worth asking because it has changed over time, and it also varies by the personnel. Where Sergino Des plays, Eunice Musa's availability. I think his worth was massively proven without Christian Pulisic. What kind of team are they when they don't really have pacey wingers and they're more kind of central midfielders cast as wide players, as Brendan Aronson and Giovanni Reyna were. You could see they were a little uncomfortable in playing out wide, and they lost a lot of the dynamism and speed dimensions that are a part of the U.S.'s game when they're fully healthy, and I think Timothy Weah's value was proven in his absence as well, but... I think it's it's a bit strange that he declined to answer that question because it absolutely has changed. And you can't say that the Greg Berhalter that took over in February of 2019 is the same Gr- Greg Berhalter of today.
0: I think he's gotten a bit more pragmatic because I think he came into the job wanting to treat it like a club coaching job and to have a really complex system that uh, he made some sacrifices and got more pragmatic as time went on, like you're saying. And I think that was probably for the better with this U.S. team. I've talked with a few people about should, in that situation, Gio Reyna play centrally as opposed to out on the wing and have De La Torre sit? Because I felt like Gio Reyna would have been more involved in that game in a central role. Like he has a Dortmund.
1: Yeah, I think him and Aronson. And, and that's sort of the, the issue, right? The issue is that they don't have a lot of out-and-out wide players. They, put, they pick players in wide positions. But in terms of playing the position like a winger would, there are things left to be desired in the way that brendan aronson and giovanni Reyna play that position which is no fault of their own they just play it differently i think maybe if you have one of them that could be a good thing if you felt like you were getting good fullback play which by the way the one positive u.s move comes from you know you have uh aronson a bit inside Des comes on the overlap plays a good cross and maybe we can get to the ferrera conversation later on but i i do think that as sam vines was unable to get forward and giovanni Reyna is looking to come inside There's not a lot of width being provided, and that makes the U.S. very easy to defend. I also think Weston McKinney did not have a good performance whatsoever uh, in in Friday against Japan. And in some ways, there are some games, Grant, where I ask myself, what does Weston McKinney do in this national (laughs) team? Which is like, I I don't mean to be overly harsh, although it sounds harsh, but he wasn't really helping the U.S. build up. He wasn't really helping the U.S. carry the ball forward he wasn't really helping the US in creative positions he wasn't really helping in pressure and it just you feel like sometimes he's just sort of a passenger in a game when he can be so dynamic at times in uh in Cincinnati in the USA Mexico game was absolutely massive in the US winning so i'm not going to say that weston mckinney is a bad player but man there are times where you're just wondering is would they have been better shifting Aronson into midfield and 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 allowing him to do his thing from the middle and bring in even if it's Jordan Morris down the, the down the wing the the increase of performance you get from midfield would help weston mckinney needs to step up massively i actually didn't like i know that he was joking but i know that but i did not like when he said tyler adams does the running and i do the playing Like, no, no, man, you got to do the running too. You got to do the pressing too. You've got to do a lot of things that are nuts and bolts midfield play that I just did not see against Japan. And I think there are moments where when he doesn't have the intensity and doesn't bring it, uh, that in some some ways dictates the tempo for the rest of the team because I do think there was also a distinct lack of intensity in the game against Japan.
0: And that's really bad if you're this U.S. team. You cannot have a lack of intensity a lack of energy in any game, especially against a good opponent. And I do think McKenney deserves some singling out. I think he had a really poor game. He's certainly capable of having the energy to almost take over a game and can be very effective on set pieces, as we know, um, in, in finishing them. Um, and we didn't see that the other day either. Um, in, in talking to Matt Turner, he brings this up in our interview uh, the U.S barely committed any fouls in this game. And Japan actually committed quite a few. And he took that, as did the rest of the team, as a sign that the U.S. intensity was down. They actually wanted to have more fouls called on them. Uh, and that was not a good sign. So, um, you know, Tyler Adams didn't have a great game, but McKenney a couple of times, including on the first Japan goal, lost the ball. Japan goes in the other direction. And then a couple of occasions, McKenney didn't even really re- try and recover. Uh, it Like, I, I would have brought him out earlier if I was Greg Burhalter in this game. And I hope it's not sort of a, a holdover from the, the bad form that Juventus is in, but Juventus has been pretty poor lately. Uh, and it just seemed like it c- carried over. I, I do think leading into this Saudi game on Tuesday that the whole U.S. team should be even more motivated to have a good performance, a good result, because this is the last game before the World Cup starts. And if it's anything like this Japan game was, there's going to be some real gloom and doom heading into the World Cup itself. And that, it's funny because
1: if you ask me after the summer when they played a bunch of friendlies and played in the Nations like, all right, you know, they'll, they're in decent shape out of qualifying. It wasn't brilliant. There were certainly things that we were talking about at the time, but they, they did the job I I sometimes wondering if we're like slightly overreacting. England feels like everything is crumbling down. Spain lost yesterday uh, at at home to Switzerland, and now things are going wrong in Spain. And you sort of wonder who's going into the World Cup in good form exactly, because like Uruguay uh, uh, lost as well to Iran. Um, But there are a lot of teams that are sort of feeling like, wait, is, is everything okay here? So I wonder if we're being slightly doom and gloom and overreacting to what was one game. But there was just... It was a game where you looked at and go oh opposition could watch this and go there are some vulnerabilities here there are some things that we can pick at here and if anthony robinson eunice musa christian pulisic and timothy Wea are not the you know knights that enter to save the day then you know what what is the u.s looking at here and you would you would think giovanni reyna at Borussia dortmund brendan aronson playing well at leeds that these are players that should Absolutely help you win, and and you have some depth. And Sam Vines looks like he's playing pretty decently in Belgium. But sometimes you just bring on players, and you go, I don't think that these are international level players, and it's harsh. But I felt that about Sam Vines. I felt that about Mark McKenzie. I felt that about a few players that came on, and go, if this player played at the World Cup, I would not feel comfortable. And Mark McKenzie I, was I, fine.
0: Mark McKenzie was actually half decent in the second half when he came on.
1: I, there's just something about the, I think it was the way that he got ran past on in one scenario where he was kind of like <laughs> looking, looking awkward. I'm going, ooh. I don't know. I mean, look, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm being harsh, but I just, I just thought there were a few moments where I thought the U.S. just didn't have enough depth. And if you, if you, have, if you lose four starters, it shouldn't completely f- fall apart. I also think it's sort of an indictment of the system that, well, if we don't have these particular players then things aren't going to go the way that we want them to when it should sort of be a system, that it's plug and play. All right, we don't have Anthony Robinson, we put Sam Vines in, everything is fine. We lose, uh, I don't know, Chris Richards, you put Aaron Long in, everything is fine. You, you lose players, you put in a sub and everything is fine. But I, I just didn't, I didn't feel that way
0: uh, for large portions of the game on Friday. I find it interesting that Berhalter appears to rate Sam Vines ahead of Joe Scally because Joe Scali is starting in the Bundesliga. And so I'd like to see Scally get a, a start on Tuesday. And if he can play better than Vines, and I think there's certainly room for him to do that, then I think you should take him to the World Cup. And, you know, obviously you want Jedi Robinson to be healthy. I think he will be. But um, that's a, a call I'll be interested to see on Tuesday. And I, I want to see Christian Pulisic have a good game. You know, he, like. This is a guy who needs some, some good things to happen to him. And lately, uh, it's either you know this new knock that kept him out of the game the other day. It's uh, his situation at Chelsea, which has not been good. He tried to get out on loan, wasn't allowed. Fans there at Chelsea really want to know, they want to hear from Christian Pulisic that he cares about Chelsea. And the, the book excerpt that came out, uh, this past week where Polisic for some reason, is talking about Thomas Tuchel not starting him in the Champions League semis against Real Madrid a couple seasons ago in the second leg when he told him at one point that he would. They won that Champions League, Chris, and it just seemed like such a weird decision to do to, to put something like that in a book and then have that come out when it did. And presumably, Tuchel, he thought when he wrote that, was still going to be the coach of Chelsea. He's not now. But it, Chelsea fans, um, it's I think they're, they're, they want to see some good things happen with Pulisic. I think U.S. fans want to see some good things happen with Christian Pulisic. And you don't want to be in a funk going into a once-every-four-years World Cup, but that is what it feels like right now with him.
1: Yeah, and maybe the manager change in these next couple months, the amount of games that Chelsea have left to play before the World Cup, at the very least, see him get minutes. But you're right, you want to see him make positive positive impacts. It's been a while for him since he's made positive impacts at either either club or national team level. And I I would just be curious uh, from from your standpoint, because you, you wrote a book ahead of the last World Cup, and that is the time to release a soccer book. But at the same time, why? Why did Christian Pulisic write a book? Because his career his career is not done, <laughs> um, and it it uh, it strikes it, it. sort of seems like well, he's trying to get a book out before the World Cup in the event that maybe some sales can come his way. But he makes a lot of money playing national team soccer, playing club soccer. It's not a money thing. What is the impetus behind Christian Pulisic writing a book on the eve of the World Cup?
0: As I understand it, this book. Is a coffee table book. It's not a full traditional memoir, um, but there is writing from Christian in this coffee table book. That's that's what I understand it to be. I have not seen it. I have not read it. Um, and so, I, I, who knows? My guess is someone approached him about it, and he decided he wanted to do it. It is more of one of those traditional, more English style. You know, either something's either an authorized book or an unauthorized book. And this is the authorized book because it's Christian himself. The only thing that I find odd is the release of that excerpt last week with the comments about Tuchel and the weird timing that was all managed by Christian Pulisic's own people. And mm-hmm. so they, they were in full control of that. And that, you know, it reminded me of like Wiley e. Coyote holding some Acme box that blows up in his face you know that's kind of what it it felt like um and so you do wonder a little bit uh you know who's advising him on some of this stuff but i haven't read the book yet so we'll see i mean christian was in my last book that came out as you mentioned ahead of the 2018 world cup had a chapter in that book and i thought he was terrific and really insightful and smart he was only like 17 or 18 years old at the time um and I think his attitude toward the media has really hardened in the four years since then. And maybe that's another reason why you want to write a book is that you don't want someone else to write something. Um, I don't know. Um, You know, he was, Christian was supposed to do a press conference in Germany before the game with the assembled media. They announced it and then right before it was supposed to start, they announced Christian Pulisic is not coming today. It's actually going to be Weston McKenney. So Pulisic pulled out, most likely, because he didn't want to be asked questions about this book excerpt.
1: Maybe, and I just don't, I don't understand, like, not not to be overly dismissive, but I feel like, you write a book when you're done with your career, not when you're sort of in the middle of it. it. It sort of feels like just an inaccurate... Like, you could read this book in 15 years' time and go, wait, that, that doesn't really seem like it has any kind of fit with his overall career arc. It sort of captures a moment in time, but... You don't really capture a moment in time in book form. That feels like a like a player's tribune piece or something like that. It just felt it it, it was strange to me that book excerpts from Christian but like I just sort of asked myself, why is he writing a book? And also, like you said, it seemed like it was gonna be orchestrated at least in part two during this international break, try and get Thomas Tuchel fired if he hadn't been fired already. <laughs> and that it just seems very bizarre. Very bizarre from a from a player who I don't feel like he's been overly criticized during his time at Chelsea. I could be wrong, and certainly his own personal experience—like I can't, I can't walk a mile in his Instagram comment shoes um, because I, I don't know, I don't know what his life is like. I don't know um, how much criticism he feels like he's received or how difficult he feels like life has been for him in England. But at the same time, I, I do think that. It's been tough, but not really because of the media, but because of the sheer number of attacking options that Chelsea have had, because of injuries, because maybe the coach uh, either before or now doesn't really prefer him. He certainly walked into into an environment when Mauricio Sadi said, I didn't even know this was happening. Uh, Cool. I guess we'll see when he gets here. So from day one, he sort of felt like an unwelcomed outsider, but at the same time, we're on the eve of the World Cup. Like you said, it should be about, it should be a time of capturing positive momentum, not, you know, trying to create negative headlines about your club coach because of a perceived slight from more than a year ago.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. I I mean, I, I do believe that Christian Pulisic, because he plays for Chelsea, is, you know, gets more attention and coverage than just about any U.S. men's soccer player ever has, right? Right. Because he's playing at such a big club. Uh, and there, there are real things that come with that, real challenges. That said, I don't think he's probably ever had, like, a truly adversarial interviewer in his life. And I do get the feeling at times that he pays a little too much attention to what's said about him on social media. And there is a, a bit of a victim complex sense. I don't think Christian Pulisic is a victim of anything, you know? He's a, he's a nice kid. Um, who is a very good soccer player, but he's not a victim. And uh, I know he doesn't particularly enjoy talking to the media, but um, you know, you still got to sell the game in the United States. Sometimes I like. I think sometimes people in England don't understand soccer in the United States is still in a place where it, it there's a lot of room for growth. It's competing against other sports, and you need to. Be out in the media. You need to be promoting. You need to not be skipping press conferences that you are announced to be attending. So, for Christian's sake, I hope he has a good game on on Tuesday, and and perhaps then can talk about that and feel better about things in general and get out of this funk.
1: Yeah, I do think that as the American, he probably does have a little bit of a target on his back. Like I have some insight into. You know the the way that Chelsea fans interact on Twitter because I sort of had to monitor that stuff for two years working on a on a Chelsea podcast. But it, it did feel like there were moments where Christian Pulisic was sort of pinned up against other Chelsea players like Mason Mount namely and there were a lot of American fans who would try and interact with Chelsea fans about Pulisic versus Mount Pulisic versus Hakim Ziyech Pulisic versus Timo Werner Pulisic versus Kai Havertz and and fighting for his role in the team and like you said if you read that stuff if you care about that stuff it can kind of it, it can very easily feel like you're in a fishbowl right where you're sort of uh, the center of attention and there's too much attention on you and you're just trying to live your life and all that but that's if you care about this sort of very small conversation that happens in pockets of the internet. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that important. But based off of how his father also interacts on social media, you can tell he reads all that stuff. And I do think that maybe there is sort of a lack of a blueprint for American stars of this level. And Christian Pulisic, at sort of every step of the way, it sort of felt like a bit of a trailblazer in the way that his career has gone because he is a meteoric rise from 17 into Champions League sides, then moves to the Premier League for more than $70 million at the time. And it sort of feels like Everything is big around Christian Pulisic. He, every time he comes to the U.S., it's can we talk to Christian Pulisic and major media outlets and the World Cup draw and all this stuff. Everything is Pulisic, Pulisic. He's the star of the team, and I wonder if that has warped the way that he views just life, the way that he you know views the media, the way that he views the conversation around him. And so, I would just sort of say, like you know, Christian, it, it, it it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it's you know, it's it's your football career. Um, you're a great player, and I feel like he can absolutely go on and do amazing things, but at the moment, it just sort of feels like us against them, when I'm not sure that's necessarily who he is as a character, he's not exactly Zlatan, right, he doesn't exactly feed off this stuff, Um, it's just sort of, enjoy yourself with the national team, enjoy this incredibly prosperous period in your life, even if sometimes there are some downs. Why am i giving life advice to christian pulisic this is ridiculous
0: <laughs> we should get uh, to my interview with matt turner so we will sign off for now thanks so much witty thanks grant now here's my interview with matt turner we're here in murcia spain with the u.s men's national team and our guest now is u.s goalkeeper matt turner great to see you matt thanks for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me back <laughs> We've got some ambient sounds here. We're not in a studio for anyone listening. We might hear some birds. There's a nice golf course. So maybe even a little thunder at some point. So bear with us uh, listeners, but we're on site here. So that's a good thing. We're in Spain. Uh, It's definitely warmer here than it was in Germany. Uh, Tough loss on Friday to Japan. What's the mood like in the team now that you've had a couple days here?
2: Yeah, I think um, the message is pretty clear. Um, It's not a performance that we can accept. Um, But at the same time, it's sometimes important to have games like that to sort of show you the way forward. So I think the reaction to that game is going to be sort of pretty telling for for this team, Um, especially... In World Cup tune-ups, if you have a bad game of the World Cup, obviously margins are are thin, but you have to be able to bounce back and you can't compound things. So um, I think it's important for this group to learn lessons given how young we are and it's not all uh, sunshine, butterflies, and rainbows out there in the World Game.
0: Are there any additional thoughts on the Japan game? Have you, have the coaches, had you watch any of it?
2: Yeah, yeah, we watched it back. Um, I think there's like loads of individual meetings, and then we also have. Um meetings as a, as a full team um, where the coaching staff sort of gives their thoughts on things and the players return the favor and we can uh, we have a, a platform where we can give our thoughts on things and I think uh, it was like a really useful exercise to talk about it go through it and then put it in the past and put it behind us and, and learn and, and move forward.
0: Is there anything that came out of those in the sense of if we in future games here see pressure like Japan came with of ways to deal with it?
2: For sure yeah for sure um, different ways um, I think the big thing is identifying how the pressure is coming where it's coming from and then just being able ourselves on the field to implement those strategies um, we can't as players rely on our head coach to move us around like chess pieces all game you know it has to come from the players a bit while we're out there and I think the over the the overhanging theme of the whole thing is, is to compete you know I think Japan fouled us almost 20 times and we maybe maybe fouled them five or six times the whole game. So um, we definitely lost the physical edge, which is something that this team pretty much has never done in in its entirety, um, especially throughout the World Cup qualifying cycle for the most part. Um, But you see like in those games that you can think about Uh, in World Cup qualifying where we didn't match or or exceed the physicality. We usually uh, struggled to get the results that we deserved, and and that was the same message uh, from the Japan game.
0: It is an interesting one. I I visited the Japan Federation a few years ago, and they actually had a trophy case with all their fair play trophies from tournaments over the years and sort of the, it's a stereotype that japan plays a certain way but they actually fouled you quite a bit <laughs> yeah
2: yeah they definitely were their physical team a lot of experience super organized but a lot of times they're 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 fouling us in in tactical areas on the field and then they help you up you know so yes they play <laughs> they play fair they play within the boundaries of the game um but honestly credit to them they were they were organized discipline and like i said they fouled when they needed to they got physical when they the, when they needed to and and they really brought it to us in the game.
0: Individually, what did you think of your performance?
2: Individually, happy with the performance. Mostly, um, I'm just I'm the type of person that never likes to see the ball hit the net. So things that I can maybe tweak a little bit. I think maybe I could have organized the defense better after we turned the ball over on the first goal, and then uh, I think the second goal was actually a really special goal. Um, the window that the player had to, to shoot and, and be able to score from that angle was super tight and he was able to thread it through there, so um, that was a, that's one that you tip your cap to. So. Um, overall, I'm happy. I think it's a good building block. It was nice to be able to come into the team and, uh, you know, fit back in and feel, um, feel confident about the performance that I put forward and, and hopefully more, more opportunities afoot.
0: There's going to be one starting goalkeeper at the World Cup. I, I, I don't envision that there will be a platoon. I guess that's possible, but I think there's going to be a number one for the World Cup. What is the scenario that you could see earning you the job? I think obviously this window is
2: a big uh, a big indicator um, from my perspective um, to be able to go out there and and show that even though I haven't been playing as consistently as I was in MLS, um, I can still go out onto the field and and be mature and show. Um, show confidence, show consistency, and keep it simple, uh, most of all, and, and help my teammates out and be a guy that my teammates can trust. And I think that that's a big thing because if you look at the successful World Cups that the U.S. has had in the past, um, goalkeeping had a, <laughs> had a pretty strong or big part in those World Cups going so well. So it's an important position. Um, I think that this window is important for me to help you know, continue that trust, because trust is earned and you have to maintain it. It's not something that you can just do once and then leave and and um, and expect it to be the same. So you have to build up that credit. You have to maintain that credit, and um, uh, with the guys around you, and they really need to to feel that trust if you're, if um, they're going to play to the best of their ability as well.
0: I still remember covering the 0-2 World Cup. Brad Friedel saving two penalty kicks. Two penalties, kicks. yeah. I don't yeah. know if anyone's done that in a World Cup before. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, if there was ever a guy, it was probably him. So, I mean, <laughs> I know. I remember him doing that.
0: Um, do you think
2: you'll get enough games
0: at Arsenal to be sharp?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, between now and the World Cup starting, there's 13 games uh, for Arsenal. Six of them are in alternate competitions. Five... Europa League and one cup game. So that's six really good opportunities for me to get out on the field, not including the seven Premier League games um, where um, obviously Aaron's playing really, really well right now in the Prem, we're top of the table. So obviously you can't expect much to change in that sense when it comes to that. But, um, you know, being ready for the opportunities that present themselves. Plus, you know, I'll be training and and uh, working hard every day. that's just who I am. Um, uh, and I, I know that there's areas in my game I need to continue, always continue to improve upon. And uh, being at Arsenal is helping me to improve upon those things. And if I was an MLS uh, right now, I would end the season in the beginning of October. And then I would have a month off before the World Cup. So um, there's arguments to be had on both sides where, you know, at least I'll be, you know, training and, and uh um, and playing some games, you know, and I'll probably play more games than, than most between now and then.
0: You know, you played in the Europa League game for Arsenal. Um, has there been a specific communication with you from Arsenal that you can expect to, to play in Europa League games and cup games? That's
2: not really the way they operate. They're not just the the type of club and Mikel's not the type of coach to tell you like, yes, no matter what, you have all these games. So I think the conversation before the first one was that I've been training well, been doing, working really hard. They're very pleased with where I'm at, and um, I've earned the right to, to play in this game. And then from there, I, I can't just stroll out there and do whatever and, and expect to play all of them. You know, I have to continue to, like I said before, build that credit, build that trust with my teammates around me, and uh, most of all, win games. So I think you know, there's they're, they're never the type of staff or club to deal in absolutes. And so for me, it's just taking the opportunities that I get and making the most of them on the field.
0: Was it kind of cool to play for Arsenal in Europe? I, I, I <laughs> yeah. mean, like, and make your, I guess, competitive debut in that yeah, game. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It was It was definitely really cool. I, and I'm not sure it really hit me till I was there and seeing the fans and everything. I was just, uh, you know, Kind of think trying to play it in my mind is like oh, it's just another game. It's just another game. But then you get there and you see the traveling support that uh, that Arsenal has is, is amazing. Um, you see the fans that Zurich had out there. The stadium was super loud. It wasn't a Central American stadium, but it was pretty pretty dang loud. <laughs> and uh, and that was pretty cool. So um, yeah, I think I didn't really have the chance to like soak it all in because at halftime we get told that Queen Elizabeth II had passed. And, uh, and then that sort of like puts it all into perspective and being an outsider amongst all that was pretty, um, was pretty interesting. Like Because yeah. we obviously don't, in America, we don't have a monarchy, we don't have that. Um, but to see how much she meant to a lot of people and to see how it affected people in different ways was pretty eye-opening. And, and I think that that's kind of what my debut turned into was, uh, was like a period of mourning, really.
0: Yeah. What has the overall adjustment been like? You've had a lot of changes in your life over the last year. You got married, you're a father, you've moved to London, you're playing for Arsenal. What stands out to you about the move and and the adjustment? I'd say the
2: biggest thing for me is I've always been so close to my family and my friends and being apart from them has is more challenging than I thought it would be. Because yes, even though I was in Boston everyone else is in New Jersey, it was still close enough where my parents could come to most of my games. Um, my friends could make a quick trip up via train or, or a car and, and come see me. Um, but obviously, I think if it was just Ashley and I that had moved to London, it would have been like, oh, like. I would have no complaints, nothing bad to say, but you know, being away from family, coming from where I grew up, 30, 40 family members, in and all within ten minutes of each other. So, what I'm used to is like when someone has a baby, you know, people go over, they they take the baby off your hands for an hour or two. You can go down and do whatever you want. So, honestly, like it, it's been challenging to adjust to that that pe that period, um, especially right after we first got home from the hospital. But I just give so much credit to my wife for making such a big sacrifice really to, to come over. We knew that we would be isolated a little bit so um, obviously that that's been hard for for her and uh, especially when I'm traveling around and that so she's been like my
0: rock through it all and and uh, I owe her a lot. <laughs> I owe her a lot. And what part of the city in London are you living in? Is there a particular location and, and what have you learned about
2: it? Yeah we live in North London um, so we kind of like it, they still call it London but I've sheep in my backyard, like over the fence, I have like sheep back there. So um, it's pretty far out there, but they still call it London for some reason. I think anything inside the M25 is technically London. I think that that was pretty eye-opening as well. Like you think of England as this place that's been inhabited for so long, but there's really a lot of open area, Mm -hmm. farmland, and uh, that's been pretty cool to see. Um, So we live close to the training ground, which has been nice, only 10, 10, 15 minutes away. Okay, So getting to and from training is really, really easy which is nice, so I don't have to drive that much on the other side, and then uh, we have a few places in London that, that we like to go to. We, we're not far from a, um, a train that is on the Piccadilly line, so it can okay. take us pretty much anywhere in London, yeah. uh, just in a few stops. Nice, Yeah.
0: glad it's going well. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, Arsenal's off to a great start in the league. What are some of the things you've observed about how things are run inside the team on a day-to-day basis that have stood out to you the most?
2: I'd say, you know, the one of the big things is organizationally like from top to bottom like everyone's on the same page everyone understands their role and and how they can best help the team and I think like even the physios and the guys in the weight room like they want to win it means just as much as that to them to win as it does to the players so everyone's kind of bought into the same message and I think that that's been a huge culture shift um, kind of everybody it feels like in America sometimes people can like, and I hate to do like this England versus America thing because I, I, I really like I, I never wanted to be that person. But I think like sometimes, at least from my experience of where I was, like you might not have somebody that really cares whether or not within the organization, like doesn't really care whether or not you win or lose. And in in, in England, that's been the big difference. So because of that, the intensity of training is is super, super high. And I think that's from Mikel like he, he really wants trainings to be intense and he wants uh, people to compete so that way in games It's just second nature. You don't even have to think it's like a, a chip is in your brain already of how things are gonna go
0: I've been watching the all-or-nothing on Arsenal. I am a Mikel Arteta fan after watching this know more about him have, have you watched it and uh, Taken any I don't know learned anything from it.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I watched it. It was very interesting because I signed in Signed so at the end of January. And then, so because of that, I was watching every single game uh, religiously, right. you know, the rest of the season. Um, and then I would have like a almost like a weekly check in with the goalkeeper coach, and we sort of talk about Arsenal's game, my game, blah, 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 and go forth. So then, obviously, then you go through an entire preseason, and then the documentary comes out. So now, like, I remember sort of my feelings from the outside. Now I know the people. And then I get to watch the documentary. So uh, it was pretty cool to watch it that way. And what you see there and on that is, is pretty much what you get. You know, this guy, uh, the gaffer, he cares so much about the team yeah. and about each individual. And it's, it's a really good feeling to play for a guy like that.
0: And I'm also wondering, in my observations, whether it was with the Revolution or with this U.S. team, you get along with a lot of the players in, in the team uh, and, and seem to be very well received everywhere you go. Um, are there any particular guys at Arsenal on the team that you've bonded with so far? Yeah, I
2: um, I hang out a lot with Rob Holding on and off the field. Um, at first when I got to Arsenal and I didn't have a car, uh, he, was, he lived not too far from me, so he was picking me up, uh, bringing me to and from training, which is really nice because uh, we got to we got to know each other pretty well, and because of that, um, you know, like sitting around with the other English guys with Aaron Ramsdale, uh, Ben White, Kieran Tierney. Um, he's not English; he's Scottish. I feel like I have to say that for the record. Um, so, I, like th- those guys are the ones you know I sit with on the bus. We play card games and things like that. But I think in general, as I've said about my stories, it's always been. Why I love this game, part of why I love this game is how it brings people together. So you don't always wanna just hang out with the people who um, are the most like you or get to know the people who are the most like you. Uh, So for me, I like to um, try to break down the barriers of people who I might not normally talk to, get to know them a little bit better, understand their culture, their story, um, like me and Tommy Asu are actually like pretty friend, like yeah. very friendly. You know, we we'll eat lunch together, uh, dinner together at the training ground, and we'll just talk. Especially when we had this friendly sort of like coming up, yeah. And we started hanging out even more and All just right. talking and and creating those relationships. at bonds and it, it, people is so special. And for me, getting to know people from different backgrounds, their stories, and um, and their cultures is is special to me. So that's part of why I love the game.
0: And We've talked at length before about your remarkable story to get from where you were to where you are now. How often do you step back and actually think about that?
2: Not too often, really. Um, I think for me, the injury I had at the beginning of this year was like the perfect amount of time for me to really process everything because the move had been made. Um, We had qualified for the World Cup. And um, obviously with... The personal life things, you know, my wife was getting ready to leave, and my son was getting even closer to being born, so I think you know during that that period was really like career wise, like the time I needed to just take a breath because if I didn't get hurt, then I would have been going nonstop now for the almost two and a half years, you know, with really no off season, which um, you know it can burn it can burn people out, you know, without having that little bit of break, but to have that, even though it was spent recovering an injury, which is mentally taxing within itself, it at least allowed me the opportunity to to reflect a little bit on how far I'd come. So that was good and I could leave that behind afterwards and, and focus on the, the family stuff that was coming up.
0: Have you told many people in England your story? Like, like in explained sort of, I don't know whether it's teammates or anybody or media or whoever. Yeah, no, not a whole lot yet. Not a whole
2: lot yet. <laughs> whole lot yet. Uh, some of the teammates, yeah. Um, and I don't think anybody really knew that my story was sort of like that. Um, but I'm, I'm always like kind of a thoughtful person, like not like, like yes, caring, like for, I won't name any names like, but for example, one of my teammates was talking about how he used to spend summer or vacation in Florida a little bit when we were down in Orlando. And um, he was like, man, like, I love Lucky Charms, you know? So next time my parents came over, I had them bring a lu- box of Lucky Charms, and I left them in his locker, you know? So um, awesome. just, like, little things like that, you know? And, and uh, But, like, I, I analyze things from, like, a very cerebral side, and having gone to university for four years is, like, a pretty rare thing sure. in the locker room, like the locker room I'm in right now. So um, it's, it's part of who I am. So I'm not afraid to like talk to people about it here and there, but yeah, when, when people hear my story or at least a little excerpt from it, they're, they, they're pretty, pretty dumbfounded. So it's pretty cool to see that.
0: <laughs> what would it mean to you to be on the field at the world cup? I think
2: it would mean a lot, a lot to me, but like more so for people out there just to see that anything's Possible like if you really really care and I hate to sound cliche, but like if you really care about something you know you can you can forge a pathway a pathway forward in that field in in whatever it is it's not just about soccer it's not just about football it's it's about it's about life so for me, I dedicated my life to continuing to improve on something that many people had told me uh, i didn't really have a chance <laughs> i didn't really have a chance in and um, getting addicted to continuously defying um, what people's expectations of me were, and uh, that—that's—that's that's just all like, like what I kind of want my message to be. You know, I want people to look at my story and think that they can do whatever, whatever they want. And I've always said, like, if if one person in ten, fifteen years, if one person comes forward and says, I heard of Matt Turner's story, and it really inspired me to just keep going in a a difficult moment, then, um, you know, I'll I'll look back on that and I'll think to myself, like, that's all you ever really wanted. You just wanted to, like, help people and, and show people that things were possible.
0: Matt Turner is here in Spain with the U.S. Men's National Team. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Again, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Matt Turner as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.